Well, good morning. I see my child in here, which means that the nursery did not go well this morning. I feel like that's going to be the case for like the next like two or three years. If you have kids that are like born in this time, like just give them a break, okay? They know nothing but their houses, okay? Let's just play there. But now I just want to say welcome to Gateway. I am Philip, your student minister here at our Gateway St. Albans location. And if, can I just be honest? I'm tired. Like, just straight up. I taught at a uh, youth event this past weekend back in my hometown. Uh, actually, at the camp that I grew up at. And I, I, was, I was driving here this morning, and my brain was just trying to, like, get together what had, like, like everything I just taught, everything I got to teach this morning. And I started, like, getting just bum-fuzzled. Which I don't know how to use that word properly, so if I'm wrong, tell me. Uh, but I try to think, just, where am I going? Like, like what is God trying to say? And I, and I started remembering what happened this weekend. And there was a point where I was teaching at Christian Acres, my home camp. And I, and I look back at my mom, who's here actually, by the way, with my aunts. My daughter turns two on Tuesday, which is unbelievable to think that she's going to be two. Um, but I was sitting there and I looked back and she's sitting back there with my two-year-old and my five-year-old niece. And I just started remembering when I was that age, as best I could, where I was. And Growing up at Christian Acres Camp, I remembered that all the people that were there serving this weekend as counselors were people that I looked up to as mentors, people that may not have been foundational necessarily, like as far as like my faith, but they were there for me when I needed it. So as a student minister, I can't express to you enough that no matter how young you are, how old you are, the students need to hear from you. If you see them in the hallway, just give them an encouraging word. Tell them that you're thinking about them, that you're praying for them, because they have a lot of pressure on them. And whenever they hear something from somebody who didn't have to say something, they remember that. They remember that. But I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig into this. God, I am still in just awe of who you are. God, being in a world where it seems like questions and, and doubt and fear are just like piling up on us, and yet our calling is to be here, is to be stewards of your word, to, to listen to the things that, that, that you're telling us to listen to, to do more. And so, God, my prayer is that we do it. As crazy as that may sound, God, that we do it. God, may my words this morning not be mine, but yours alone. Help us to hear something new about you. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, not many people know this, uh, because I, I, I don't do social media very well, um, but I've been I'm getting my master's in apologetics right now. Um, I started back in April, and the information that I have gotten just in these past couple months have been unreal, have been absolutely unreal. And so the first thing that I've come to realize, I believe, is that people don't necessarily struggle with if there is a God. They struggle on why should they follow him. We don't struggle necessarily, I mean, I say we, but, but people, we, like, we can look at things and be like, okay, fine, there's a God, cool. But why should I follow him? We can have argument upon argument about the existence of God, and people will be willing to admit that, yes, he exists, but why should I follow him? What makes him different from anything? And so doubt becomes almost like common in everybody's head. And we have a, a common misconception on that, that we think doubt is wrong. We think that doubt causes us to be bad Christians, and I'm here to tell you, it doesn't. It doesn't. 
If you look at the, the, the disciples' life during Jesus' life, they were constantly being told and being affirmed like Jesus is real. He's coming up and he's like, you faithless generation, he says in Mark 9. Why do you not just believe in who I am? And they're like, no, we do, Lord, we do. And then they start to do good and then all of a sudden something bad happens and they're like, where are you, Jesus? Like, it's like this, this theme of we believe, we don't believe, we believe, we don't believe. And so doubt just continues to run their minds. I'm going to say something that may sound a little controversial. I don't think the disciples were 100% believers until after the resurrection. Because if you notice something, if you notice something, whenever Jesus is being flogged and he's being spit on and he's being crushed, where are the disciples? They're gone. The only one that we necessarily know of are James and Peter. And Peter was the one denying Jesus three times. He wasn't even there to stick around. They didn't know how big it actually was. But what happens after the resurrection? All of them die because of what's already happened, which is, again, one proof as to why I think the resurrection actually happened, because they were willing to give up their lives because they saw the reality of what Jesus actually did, because they got to see him and they got to be there with him. So whenever we think about doubt, let that be an example of that, that be, having doubts does not make you a bad Christian at all. It makes you normal because I believe that what God's trying to do with your doubts is show you how real he is. And the Christian God is the only one who can say that he is still alive. Can I get an amen on that? Now let's dig into it. I could sit here and preach that by myself all day, but let's, let's get into it. These past few weeks, we have been in a doubt series. And the first week we discussed that having questions in your faith is normal. Having questions in your faith is normal. And, I, and, and we discussed that already, already briefly, is that you can have doubts. You're not a bad person for it. It's okay. Number two, in confidence, we share the evidence and answers that we know. The only way that people are going to be able to hear is by the words that we can say, by our personal experiences, by the factual evidence that we find about the life of Jesus. That's our commission. That's our goal. That's our task. That's what we need to be doing. Because all we're doing is we're putting this grace that we have in a bank account that God's given us. He says, no, here, it's free. And then we're like, okay, well, I'm going to leave it right there. I don't want to do anything with it. And he's like, okay, you're missing the point. Get it out. Use it. Number three. In humility, we sometimes have to say, I don't know. This is one of the hardest things to teach a teenager, is that if you pretend to have an answer, people will pick up on how fake we actually are. People don't want fake, they want authentic. And they can find it faster than anything. Think about people in your life where you, like, they don't even have to necessarily do anything, you just know, like, they, they don't mean what they say. They don't know what they're talking about. It might, it might be your in-laws, not me, not my in-laws. But, 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 but think about it, like, you know when somebody's being fake when they're being real. And when people are being real, even if you do not like the outcome of that real, you're more receptive to it because you know where they stand on things. P don't pretend like you know if you don't. You can always come back to find answers if you do not know. Don't leave it there. So then we have what I like to call like little bottom lines of these weeks. The first one is being a muddled memory. We have a big problem when it comes to the root of doubt. When it comes to root of doubt, we forget that we're not the authors of our lives. 
we forget that we are not the ones who are supposed to be ruling. And so whenever I say a muddled memory is that we forget what Jesus did. Whenever we have a muddled memory, we forget that we're not the authors of our own lives and that Jesus actually is. And then if we allow doubt, hear what I say, allow doubt to push us into that, that negative thinking, that I'm a bad Christian type thinking, the I'm never going to be good enough thinking, then your memory is is all about what you do and it's not about what Jesus has already done. Don't let doubt lead you to muddled memory. Number two, a partial picture. This past weekend, I was talking to these students about, uh, about doubt, believe it or not. And when it comes to doubt, is that when I say a partial picture, is that, and go with me to a place, okay? You're riding in a car, and you guys know that one stretch of road that you used to drive all the time, that it just feels like it takes forever. Whenever I was in college at Johnson, I drove home almost every weekend. Don't ask me why, biggest regret of my life, okay? Three-hour drive. But from Withful to about like Glade Springs, about an hour, hour and a half, I dread it because it's just straight. And you know that moment of, oh my goodness, I do not want to do this again. And like you almost forget like that you even got there, but you know you did because you're obviously there. But we see life that way, is that we see things that are just right in front of us. And we tend to forget what's the actual eternal picture of our life. We make decisions based off of feelings. We make decisions based off what seems right to us in that moment. And unfortunately, that moment may not be what's actually true. We're just mad, we're upset, we're broken, whatever you wanna call it. And so we make decisions based off what's in front of our window. But lucky for us, God doesn't have that view. How many of you guys have ever been up in a hot air balloon? Thank you. I didn't think they actually existed because I'd never met anybody who'd actually done one. Found out, you guys my two and three. But whenever we look at God, is that God knows exactly what road we're on, but he has the bigger picture of what's going on. And so thank goodness, God does not act just on impulse, right? Because he says, if you just keep on this road, you'll see the full picture eventually. It may take a while. We may not always like the road that we're on, but eventually it will come. I talked about Asaph in Psalm 73 this past week. And Asaph was a, was a close friend of David. And now Asaph starts his psalm by saying, praise be to God. Meaning I've seen this on the other end so I can talk about it. So then the rest of the psalm is about Asaph who is struggling with the fact that non-Christians are prospering and the Christians aren't. And so he's like, I don't understand. What's the point of Christianity? What's the point of following God if nothing good comes from it? I can do whatever they do, have more fun compared to being a follower of of, of God and being like, this isn't worth it. But at the end of the Psalm, he says, I've seen it. It's not about the now, it's about the later. And when we stop focusing on the now, then we realize that everything we go through today will dictate what happens tomorrow. A partial picture comes from a rooted out if we allow it. Number three, a faulty foundation. We talked about how you can't have your parents' faith, maybe your spouse's faith, maybe your youth leader's or your preacher's faith. And that's really hard for some of us because that's what we grew up in. For a lot of us, like our parents may have forced us. I was lucky that I, I wasn't one of those. My dad's a minister. So it was super awkward whenever I didn't go to church. 
Because they're like, where's your son? But my parents gave me that decision to say yes or to say no. And I'm grateful for that. But not always, but, but, there, but there's a lot of cases where people choose not to. But the point is, is that we choose our faith. And so when I say that, is that Jesus wants a one-on-one relationship with you personally. He wants to have that original, authentic relationship where you choose him. He doesn't want to force it. He doesn't want to force you. But more than that, he doesn't want you to force your beliefs off somebody else's. Because if you put all of your joy, happiness, and belief in God and somebody on this earth, they will let you down 100% of the time because they are not perfect. Jesus is. A faulty foundation. Today, we're going to be going through Joshua, which is unique because in my class right now, it's the case for the Bible. And I just did a huge, long uh, project on Joshua, and in particular, Jericho, about how Jericho actually existed. And the only mention of Jericho in any kind of non-biblical historical book is from the Bible. It's the only mention of Jericho. And yet every single archaeologist knows that it's considered Jericho because of different findings at the site of Jericho. And you know what they found? Busted up walls that have fallen. And you know what else they found? that it was burned after the walls fell. You know what else they found? Jars of grain that were covered in ash, which grain was considered a luxury, so they would have stolen it. And why wouldn't they take from Jericho? Because God told them that everything was to be dedicated to him. Just a fun um, apologetics fact right there. But Joshua has like these, what they call disabling raids throughout his book. So the Israelites have just entered into the land of Canaan. And what they're doing is they're going to different sites and they're just getting rid of everybody. That was how God wanted it to be. He says, I want you to go through and you're going to take it over because this is the promised land. So just hold that thought. Keep with Joshua chapter 24 if you're a hard copy Bible person like me. But before we get there, I want to set the stage. How many of you guys would say you struggle with commitment of any type? Just me. I love it. I'll do it. I'm cool with that because it's true. When I was going through this sermon, it was like one of those, like, Jesus just kept slapping me in the face saying, this is you, this is you, this is you. And it hurt because we all struggle with commitment of some type. I'll go through a couple examples here. Number one, we have trouble keeping our commitment to physical exercise. I've mentioned that, I, that I, I'm a part-time personal trainer, and, and one of the hardest things to see is the month of February. You want to know why? Because January is the busiest month we ever have because of New Year's resolutions. I'm going to be healthier. I'm going to be more fit. So February, you see the people in January, that now they're not coming back. It's every year, it's clockwork. So you try to encourage them. But we have a trouble committing to that long term. Also, we have a trouble committing to a hobby. I'm going to read X amount of books this year. And yet you still are trying to figure out what a book looks like that doesn't have pictures. Okay, maybe you have trouble committing like that. Maybe it's like a hobby or I'm going to fix that. My philosophy, don't learn it. People don't ask you to fix it. It's working great for me so far. But we have the idea that we, have, we struggle with committing to learning something new. Maybe it's an instrument. Maybe it's just some kind of like new task. I, I, my wife is one of the most creative people in the world because she can see like our kitchen, for example, and paint a whole new picture. You know what I see? I don't care. I get plates out of it. I get cups. So I'm grateful for her because she loves to learn new things. But for me, I don't commit to it because I don't want to learn it because I don't understand it. Okay? But we struggle with that. Also, I think that we have a, we have a hard time keeping commitments in relationships. 
I'm going to touch on some toes on that one here in a little bit. Now, I'm going to nerd out on you guys for a second. Is that okay? I collect Funko Pops. Philip, what is that? It's something that if you looked it up, you would judge me for because I am 31 years old. If you look it up, you're going to see something along the lines of like bobbleheads. But basically, they are bobbleheads. I consider them action figures because they make me look more cool. But they're action figures that uh, are in boxes. And I, and I have some specific black light ones that I've told myself for months now that I'm going to build a shadow box for just to put them in as like a case. I'm yet to buy wood. You want to know why? Because I'd have to mortgage my house to buy it. But I, I, I don't know where to begin. And so you struggle with committing things. Even if you say, I'm going to do this, it's hard to actually take the steps to do that certain action. And the reality for this is, reality is, is that if we have a hard time committing to the small things, why would we think that we can commit to the big things? The same thing with leadership is if you are in charge of, of people, like maybe it's even your family, if you have a hard time uh, committing to even the responsible things in your life, what makes you think that you can help others commit to the responsibilities in their life? It's hard to lead small if you can't, I mean, I'm sorry, it's hard to lead big if you can't lead small. Committing. But now let's turn it to our faith. Let's turn it to our faith. Maybe you've committed in the past to reading the whole Bible in a year. It never happened. Maybe you've committed to praying more and you start the prayer and you fall asleep. Dear God, good night. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you're committing to volunteering at the church and you keep hearing the phrase in your head, but I have this, but I have that. Maybe you're committed to giving more, but you keep finding reasons not to. Maybe you hear that, that verse in the Bible that says, don't give reluctantly. And you're like, that's me today. I'm reluctant. Maybe you're committed to coming to church more this year. And, and, and it seems like twice is the max for the next six months. But hey, I did it more than once. We have a hard time committing to things. And, and, and here's some, some positive. It's common. This isn't new. You're not the first one to struggle with committing to something. You're not the first one to have a hard time with it. I am a millennial. Dave Stauffer bashes us. He has no right because he's not one. I am, so I can bash us. We do this nonstop. This is us. We love to commit to things, but then put like that little asterisk beside it, like, but we'll see, but maybe. Like, again, when I was writing this, I started thinking in my head, like, oh my goodness, I literally just typed this out in a Snapchat to one of my students. Like, yeah, we'll see what the week looks like. And so we struggle with committing, and, I, and, and I'm like saying to myself, just do it. What do you have going on? We try to tell ourselves that we're trying to be flexible, but in reality, we're just being kind of, I'm going to say the word negligent. And again, if you think I'm talking to you, I'm talking to me. Do you know how many asterisks I put in my lesson to say, this is you, this is you, dummy, like nonstop. But let me explain it this way. We have a culture that almost praises this right here. We have a culture that says, well, let's take it day by day. Let's take it hour by hour and then we'll see. Let's put it in another way. Let's say you're on your wedding day. And you guys have spent thousands on the wedding. You've invited all of these people. You've paid for a ton of food. And then the day comes. You get up on the stage and you hear the preacher say this, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, 
till death do us part. And then the husband says, well, wait, let's take a second. How sick are we talking here? Am I having a good day or am I having a bad day? Is she having a good day or a bad day? And so we're like, would that be considered commitment at that point? No, absolutely not. Because we understand that sometimes committing to something means doing it and knowing full and well that you may not always like what happens afterwards, but you're committed to it. And we all know those moments. Now, true commitment to Jesus looks a little different too. It's a decision to honor Christ even when things get difficult. It's a decision to trust God no matter how hard things can be. This is really hard for us because we base our faith on feelings a lot of the time. We like to say, yes, it's really good to follow Jesus when things are going well in my life, when the kids are acting well, whenever we all wake up on a Sunday and things are perfect. It's really easy to follow Jesus when there's not anybody really, 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 really sick in our family. It's really easy to follow Jesus when we can look around our life and we see the blessings. Now, how often is that every single day of our life? Rarely, if ever, right? Jesus is saying, you're going to have hard times. And in those hard times, you need to trust me more. We want to be there and we want to say, God, fix this. But we don't want to sit back and say, God, thank you for this. Even though I, I do it every single day. Even though I, I wake up every single day. And so when things get difficult, we want to say, I don't know if I want to commit to this Christianity thing. Because you say you're good, but I'm not really feeling that goodness right now. I'm here to tell you that he's good even when we don't feel it. He's good even when we don't see it. And he wants that commitment to be eternal. It's a decision to follow him even when our steps have no direction. It's a decision to obey his word even when we do not like the information. Being in apologetics, I realize something. There's a lot that makes me uncomfortable to read. There's a lot of verses where you're like, okie dokie. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. And when we believe that the word of God is, is perfect, then there's going to be things you don't like and that go against what you actually have thought your whole life. Maybe your parents have been teaching you one thing and then you're reading the scriptures and you're like, that doesn't, that doesn't fit with what I've been taught my whole life, which kind of goes back to the whole personal relationship with Jesus thing is that he'll open you up to see different things at different times when you need them. But when the word of God says something you don't like, dig deeper and see what he was meaning. Because even if we don't like it, that doesn't mean that God is less good. Pay attention, that's commitment. It's a decision to believe in him even when the information seems hard. Because if there's one thing I understand is that feelings will lie to you. Your feelings will lie to you. Think about it. Being a parent, I'm seeing this more and more every day. Let's say you're having a really long week, like a really long week. You know what I'm talking about? Like the one where you can't get any work done because the kid won't let you get any work done. And then you have to stay up late because you couldn't get the work done so you could get the work done. And so now about 1 a.m. you're falling asleep. And then you hear that, 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 that thing over the baby monitor that just says, oh my goodness, not again. 
And then it just continues on for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Maybe they lay down, maybe they stand right back up. And then the crying continues. And then three o'clock rolls around and it still hasn't stopped. So then you go in there, you try to comfort them and then it just continues to get worse. I've never experienced this, but let me just tell you from it. Is that then at, at 6 a.m., they don't care how long you've been asleep. It's time to wake up and play with your Thomas the Tank Engine toys. You know what I'm saying? So in, at 6, 7, 8 o'clock, do you feel like getting up and playing? No but you know you have to, right? The kid can't do it themselves, even though you wish they could. The same thing in your marriage. Let's say that very bad week has just continued and now your spouse is sitting there soundly asleep and you're saying, well, I'm gonna fight you. And you wanna hit him with a pillow, the hardest pillow you can find made of bricks. So now, so now your marriage is struggling, you know? So then we base not only the kid on feelings, but now we're basing the marriage and now it seems like they're clashing. And if we made decisions off of feelings, the kid would still be in the bed crying and you would be single, right? But that's not what committing to a marriage and to having a baby is. Don't base your days off of feelings because the devil uses feelings just as much. And he can only do as much as you allow him. And if you give him a toe, he'll take a foot. Woo, let's keep going. So now we're talking about commitment. And in Joshua 24, I think that there are three different steps to this type of commitment. Now, if we're leading up to this, in chapter 23, Joshua is giving like his last sermon. Like Joshua is basically getting ready to say, hey, I'm getting ready to die. This is on you guys now, okay? We've just done all of this. And so Joshua begins to remind them of everything that God has blessed them with. He says, Let, pay attention to this, remember this, remember that. He says, but I'm getting ready to go. And so he gives like a little farewell speech. In chapter 23, he reminds them of how God has been there for them. In 24, he reminds them of their journey leading up to what has just happened. So much so, he's like, remember when God fought for you? Remember that time that God sent hornets to kill people? Look it up, 2412. So he's like, remember this. Remember this stuff. So the first thing I think he says is understand what God wants. Understand what God wants. If you read through chapter 24, there's a lot of phrases that I don't have time to go into right now, but, but just really briefly, how many, count how many times you see the words, I, and this is God talking through Joseph to the Israelites, okay? So Joseph is just quoting God here. You see phrases like, then I sent, then I brought, and when I brought, but they cried to the Lord, me, and then he says, I brought you out, I gave them, I destroyed them, I would listen to them, I gave them into your hands, so I gave you a land, and then we pick up here in the first half, of chapter 24, verses 14, where it says this. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. That word fear is one of those things that make me uncomfortable. Can I be honest? The word fear is like, so wait, you want me to be absolutely petrified? And Christians, and a lot of, a, a lot of well-known Christian people will say, well, he doesn't literally mean fear. Let me give you some context on that word. The, the word there is yeru. Say yeru. It's a Hebrew word, and it's used over 300 times in the Old Testament. So when we say God didn't literally mean fear, read the context of those 300s every single time. Seems like he means literally fear. The word yeru means to have complete reverence. It means fear, but what's fun about the word yeru is that it's an imperfect verb. And you know what that means? Is that it's a verb that has a positive meaning. 
So we're using a negative sounding word that's meant to have a positive meaning. And God is saying, fear it. Fear me. Have reverence for me. Every instance that we see God maybe taking form in some sort of way, like in the, in the burning bush or when an angel walks by, like the person who, on the receiving end is terrified because they understand that the person who's in front of you could destroy everything in a second with a single word. It's complete reverence. It's not the type of fear when you're watching a scary movie like me and saying, oh no, it's that, oh my goodness, this is the creator of the world. It's a high respect for who God is. So when Joshua is saying this from God, he says, now fear the Lord, have complete reverence for the Lord because being the imperfect verb, it's meant to have a positive meaning behind it. It's meant to have a positive meaning. It's sort of like uh, in John chapter 15, when we see about God being the divine dresser and he's walking through the, the, the garden and he's looking at all the trees that are bearing fruit, meaning us, and we're connected to the vine. And so like, I think of that word fear, like, we're, like God's walking by us and he sees that, our, that we're dying sticks on the ground. And in John chapter 15, it says he takes the sticks and he throws them into a fire. It's that type of fear is that we better be bearing fruit. We need to do our best. It's harsh, but it's scripture. It's scripture. But we get this backwards. Sometimes we have the mentality that we call the shots, that we do what we can to achieve this, that we do blank. In the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, you have the story of these people who are trying to build the biggest tower so that they can get as close to God as if God wasn't already close. You know what I'm saying? And they're like, we can do this. Come on, everyone grab a brick. And then they get up there and they realize, oh, well, this is really hard. Evolution. Humanity has somehow crawled its way up the social ladder, and now we're the first one. Whoever gets to be the first one gets the primitive prize. Like, hey, we're the top of the food chain, ha-ha. Culture, it's me-centered. It's me. I do what I want. I make my own rules, and God can get the leftovers. We are selfish people. Our relationship with God is meant to be an exclusive one-on-one -on -one relationship. I tell the students all the time that your relationship with God is meant to be the most important one of your life, above your marriage, above your kid, above your job, above every single relationship you could ever think, your relationship with Jesus is the most important one you could ever have. And if you treat it as number two or number three, then number one is an idol. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, he says, have no other gods before me. It's, he wants it to be exclusive. The second half of verse 14 says this, throw away the gods of your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and then what? Serve the Lord. Joshua's challenging them. He's giving them a, a, a calling to say, make a choice. Verse 15 says this, but if serving the Lord seems, what's that word? Undesirable to you. That's hard to hear. Like, imagine if God comes down and he goes, hey, if serving me is undesirable, then what are you going to do about it? But that undesirable phrase shows us a couple of different things that, 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 that it, it's, it's interesting that Joshua gave him a choice, number one. He's, he's gone through all this, like, remember what God's done. Remember this, remember that, which shows us that they're still serving the gods of the ancestors and of the Amorites. There's still false G gods in there, in their camp. And he's saying, it's time for you to make a choice. The second half of verse 15 says this, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, 
whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are still living. Not following God is easier, if we're being honest. It's a lot easier to just give into your temptations and to give into your life and just be like, I'm going to do whatever we want. I don't care. That's the easy route. That's what makes it easier for us to just sin and just be like, you know what? I don't care what anybody says. This is my life. You can't tell me what because I make my truth. And that goes against everything that scripture has ever, ever taught. We're not ours. We are God's. And the moment that we start living for that, we talk in Romans chapter 8, it says that we're living for our flesh and not for the spirit. It's easy. Now, when I talk about Asaph, is he had that moment of doubt, of complete question. And so he had to make a choice right there. Am I going to believe what God says or not? And Joshua's giving them a similar task here. He's saying, are you going to serve the God of your ancestors? Meaning, are you going to serve the past? The God of your ancestors were the things that are already gone. Why are you still, letting, why, why are you still holding on to them? The other one here is, is, is about the Amorites. It's about the Amorites. And these were the gods that they had just walked through Canaan and defeated. So what Joshua is saying, are you going to serve me or are you going to serve your past? Are you going to focus on the things that you used to do or on the things you're supposed to do? In Revelations 3, 15, we read this. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Welcome to church. Most encouraging verse we could hear today, right? He's saying that if you are choosing to sit in between, meaning you're like, okay, well, I'm going to serve God, but I'm also going to keep these other guys around. He's saying that I will spit you out of my mouth. And if you want another word for spit, vomit. In one of the gospels, he talks about how people will sit, will consistently say, like, I'm a fig tree, and then you want to produce olives. Like, I can't wait to bear some fig olives today. Can't be done. You're either one or the other. And God is saying, I wish you would just pick a side, be one, and we can start there. And that's hard to hear for some of us because that's not the most comforting verse in the world. And number three, make a decision. The last half of verse 15 says this, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It seems like Joshua has taken the narrative from what they are supposed to do or what they should be doing, and now it's going back to what I'm doing. I'm setting the example. I'm doing what I feel like I need to do. Being a parent of a two-year-old, my kid is a sponge right now. And first off, it's the funnest time of my life because I've taught her to say that the Steelers eat worms. And she says it. But what I realize is that she also picks up on the things that I shouldn't say. And I've gotten a few of those. Your kids will pick up on your actions, the words that you say, and the way that you say them. They will pay attention to every detail. So now my question is, is are you, Setting a marriage example, an identity example, a spiritual example that you would be proud for your kids to copy. And if that hurts, I'm sorry, but it's a challenge. 
because it's a challenge that I have to do better on too. Is it starts every single day. Is that whenever you're arguing with your spouse, how are you talking? And is that the way that you want another man to talk to your daughter or do you want your daughter to be treated like by another man? Is that the kind of man you want to raise, one that doesn't respect people? So whenever I sit here and I think about like, like how Joshua's talking, is he's having this conversation of, do you want to be this or do you want to be that? And here's the people's response in verse 16. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. They're like, no, we don't want to be that kind of group. And so for the next couple of verses, they're like almost justifying like, no, we're going to be the good people in the world. And so then Joshua kind of gives them like that moment of, well, wait a second. Do you know what you're actually saying? Verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. Encouraging verse number two today. You can't. And if that phrase makes you uncomfortable, look at the context real quick. You cannot because you are not. That word are that we're using there is showing that they're currently doing what they're saying that they're not going to do. You can't serve God if you're still serving little G gods. You cannot because you are not. They're making a decision, but they're making it without fully understanding what they're doing. And so Joshua is trying to give them this choice. Do you understand what I'm telling you to do? Give up your past. Give up your little G gods that mean nothing. Pray to them all you want. They're not gonna do anything. Give up what you think you want. Give up this, give up that. And they're struggling with it. Verse 23 says this. Now then, said Joshua, throw away your foreign gods foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. God will not force you into a relationship. God will not force you. If it's forced, I don't think it's love. He gives you that choice, that free will to make a decision. And it's just as easy to say no as it is to say yes. It's hard for us to give up different things that are keeping us from committing to God. But my question for you today is, what is it that's keeping you from committing 100%? What's keeping you from having a clear commitment? Is it your job? Is it your marriage? Is it some type of specific sin that you're like, I just, I don't want to give this up? It's a lifestyle. Is it a past sin that you just can't let go of? Is it the sin of somebody else that you can't forgive? Whatever it is, Realize something for me. The same grace that is given to murderers, child molesters, the busted up people of the world is the exact same grace that covers you and me. And if that makes you uncomfortable, me too. But Jesus' blood either covers some or it covers all. And I believe that it covers all. That grace does not extend to just a handful of people. It's to everybody. Here in Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we read this. And we read it earlier, but I want to read it again. 
What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that sin, I mean, so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. This is the mentality. Are you going to stay where you are? Are you going to live in one place and then tell yourself, I'm just going to stay there, I'm good? Or are you going to commit to a God who loved you so much, he made himself a man, fully God, fully human, to die for you, and now you get to have that very thing living inside of you as the Holy Spirit. Grace is for everyone. So are you going to live in grace? Or are you just going to keep it in a bank account and never use it, never explain it, never give it to anybody else? A clear commitment. How are we going to have it? That's my challenge to you. I'm going to pray and the band's going to come up and we're going to sing one last song. And if you have anything that you want to talk about, maybe some clarification. Uh, I am a far from perfect man. So I know I, 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 know I, I, I uh, mess up regularly. But we're going to be up here, and if you have anything you want to talk about, pray about, please come up. We would love to talk to you. We want to partner with you in your doubts and help you see that we'll help you figure it out the best that we can. You're not alone in this battle. You're not alone in this fight of being a Christ follower. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. God, as imperfect as we are, you continue to put us in opportunities to teach people about you. And I don't understand that. You know how messed up and, and how, uh, how our words get mixed up. And sometimes we almost do more damage than we do good. And yet you're like, no, 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 you're fine. Keep going, keep doing it. It's like we're, we're, we're learning to ride a bike and we just keep falling off. And we're like, what's the point? And you're like, no, just keep going. You'll figure it out. God, my hope is that people, that if, if they've heard nothing else, is that doubt does not make them bad Christians, God. It makes them good Christians who are trying to figure it out. And that's the beautiful part. And God, if we don't even know where we stand with you, help us to start there. If we're letting our doubt keep you, or we keep us from you, then God, soften our hearts to see what we need to do. God, put people in the people's lives who need it to, to say, no, let's walk on this journey together. Father, help us to commit to you even when we don't understand. Help us to commit to you even when it's not easy. Help us to commit to you above everything Father, thank you for this Sunday. In your name I pray.